Hey, hey, you good? Hey, Karam, I'm, tr I'm just trying to find Branch 251 on Google Maps, actually, but I, I can't seem to find it. Well, you're not trying to Google Branch 251, right, on Google Maps? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did, I did put in Branch 251 Damascus, Syria. Obviously, I didn't really expect any results. What we know is it's close to Baghdad Avenue, right? Uh, you're in Google Maps now, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. so near there. We know that it's close to Al-Hilal Hospital. I mean, if you look now, Al-Hilal, okay. uh, like a hospital sign. Um, that's the Red Crescent Hospital. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Al-Hilal, yeah. Okay, do you see I it? found it. Okay. Yeah, it's on the south end of Al-Khatib Street, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, Al-Khatib, actually, is how Branch 251 is referred to in Syria. Uh -huh. You know, by survivors, they call it Fir uh, Al-Khatib in Arabic. Mm. So that you see where Baghdad Avenue meets Al-Khatib Street? You you mean the the large green uh, spot in between the apartment blocks? Right. Yeah. Um, I think to the south there is a row of apartment blocks uh, mm. and the central one. Mm -hmm. From from all we know, it's the central one. That's it. That's that's branch two fifty one. Yep. Up the road from the Red Crescent Hospital. Yeah, that is your branch, branch two fifty one. Yeah. Wow, so close to the hospital. That is that is kind of morbid. Welcome back, listeners. This is the second episode of Branch 251, the podcast about the world's first criminal trial dealing with accusations of atrocity crimes by Syrian officials. My name is Karab Shomali. And I am Fritz Streif. What will we be talking about today, Fritz? Uh, there is no court this week, so... Right, so after the first four intense days of court sessions, there is a break now until the 18th of May. So today we'll give you listeners some background on the case and we'll take you on a journey into Branch 251 itself. Like you tried to do on Google Maps, right? <laughs> well, I just wanted to see where it was. I just wanted to get an impression um, and, and get a feeling for, for the location. It's really... Very interesting that it's right in the city. It's it's not in some sort of uh, desert uh, location or something. It's yeah. it's not in the center center, but it is in a completely normal neighborhood. And yeah. to be honest, it kind of reminds me of the infamous interrogation and torture prison that the East German intelligence service, the Stasi, used in Berlin in a in a neighborhood called Hohenschönhausen. Yeah, and that prison also was kind of hidden in plain sight in a in a residential neighborhood like that. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's not far from where I live actually here in Berlin. Well, at this point, I think uh, is the right moment to give a bit of a warning. In this episode, we will go on a journey inside the torture prison of Branch 51. Survivors have actually called it Hell on Earth. Mm. This episode will contain descriptions of the inside and the circumstances of being imprisoned there. The torture methods, it will be heavy, but we talk to survivors. These are their stories, their accounts and their memories. And this is the reality. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, the, the victims in this trial were at Branch 251 between April 2011 and September 2012. But out there, there are so many victims that were at the branch after that. In 2013, 2014, 15, and up until now. So this is how it's still today, you know, mm -hmm, this is mm -hmm. still happening while we're talking. But yes, I mean, better not listen with kids or just before going to bed. Okay, so let's do this. How do I have to imagine this back in 2011, Karam? Is it like enforcers, like what Iyad A is accused of, that they would 
sort of hunt down so-called illegal demonstrators, mm -hmm. like ambush them, arrest them, put them in minibuses and drive them down to branch 251? Yes, uh, those enforcers are plain cloth officers and nondescript vehicles. They, they ambush you, sometimes trick you into coming to a certain place. They make a friend of yours call you and uh, arrange a meeting and that's where they show up. Oh, wow. uh, they arrest you usually after a demonstration, like after the Friday prayers. Or maybe a political sit-in on just another Sunday in Syria, mm -hmm. on the street or wherever you, they would find you, even in front of your kids. It just doesn't matter. They are on a mission to, to arrest you. And uh, they use zip ties to handcuff you, um, very tight ones. Uh, it feels like it's cutting into your wrists. Mm -hmm. They push you into some sort of minibuses usually with uh, other detainees inside already, mm -hmm. with your jacket or sweater pulled all the way over your head. So you can't really see where the car is going or the faces of the agents. Mm -hmm. While they push you into the car, they are constantly beating you all over your body and swearing at you with insults. And uh, what kind of what kind of insults do I have to imagine? <laughs> yeah, well, um, profane insults like yeah, or yeah, which means something like you brother or son of a whore mm -hmm, right. or a bitch and stuff like that. I'm sorry for the language. And of course, the swear words in Arabic are you know, gender-based. When they arrest women, they call them whores and bitches. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that comes with also electric shocks and with these kinds of sticks, you know, that are loaded with high voltage. Mm -hmm. They are like tasers, like uh, improvised ones. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So, so in a way, during these arrests, uh, the the violence and the real sort of abuse and and early stages of torture already start uh, on the way to branch 251. Yes, yes. They would take you straight there or to one of its nearby subsections. Mm -hmm. It depends really where you are picked, but eventually you would end up at branch 251. Right. Uh, you just arrive at the parking lot and it's really, you know, just another parking lot of what used to be and still looks like a residential building. They drag you inside, down, straight to the basement where uh, nobody can hear you or hear your screams. Mm. But not really straight to a cell, because first uh, there is what the guards would call the welcoming party, which is... Uh, the, the welcoming party? Yeah, the welcoming party, which is strange, right? Uh, yeah. According to some of the survivors we talked to, this is how the guards actually refer to your first round of beating at the branch. Uh -huh, uh -huh. The welcoming party. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really dark, you know, how humor finds its way into the craziest of places and horrifying yeah. and moments. Dark humor. Dark yeah, humor, yeah. yeah. And what happens at that uh, welcoming party? Well, uh, so whether you arrive on your own or with other detainees, any soldier or agent present at the facility at that time, mm -hmm. at the time of your arrival, would take part into beating you. It's a sadistic spectacle. You know, they would just mm. whip you with electric cables. When you fall down, they kick you in the face and on your head with their military boots, like heavy leather ones, mm -hmm. on your back, in your ribs, thighs, face, you know, like big chance you will leave the welcoming party with some broken ribs or fingers or uh, or nose, you know. So the kerosene you heard in the car was just the appetizer. This can mm -hmm. take up also to an hour or, or, or so, basically, until whenever they feel like they had enough or maybe you go unconscious, you know, mm -hmm. or they... They don't want to kill you at this stage, right? You know, they still need to interrogate you. They are not done with you yet. Okay, so in a way, they're they're just 
sort of setting the tone for for what's to come and um yeah what 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 happens then after the welcoming party they get thrown into the cell not yet not yet after that round of beat in because we just arrived right so there's a procedure for uh, some sort of a chicken okay uh, after that round of beat in is done uh they would ask you to strip naked mm-hmm. uh take all of your clothes off and they inspect you thoroughly thorough inspection survivors actually describe this part as uh traumatizing it's uh, very degrading and mm-hmm. they conduct a thorough search of your cavities um your private parts female survivors actually told me that this was one of the most traumatizing experiences at the branch because mm-hmm. they just arrived you know and they don't expect this is their first kind of experience you know at a interrogation branch and they don't expect such a thing to happen right away right right what usually happens after the beating is that they call your name one by one to go into another room there is a guy who basically checks you into the facility mm-hmm. he's your totally average bureaucrat you know all he wants from you is your id address and some personal information mm-hmm. um he asks you to write down all of the information on a sheet of paper but uh you know this is happening right after the beating so you're not in uh uh in a position you know to be able to think straight or uh, write down things and imagine even doing that with a broken yeah. hand or yeah. finger or bleeding nose you know uh, so, uh yeah uh, okay so so after you get in and you get tortured at this weird welcoming party you you get stripped and you get um checked thoroughly and mm-hmm. but then you would meet the bureaucrat the sort of the administrator um, who quote unquote just does his job and registers your information like that yeah i mean you know like these state torture systems and branches still need bureaucrats to kind of run mm-hmm. them right not just torturers and jailers and uh, yeah yeah, so. yeah it kind of reminds me of of the category of the let's say so called desk criminals you know during similar state sponsored mm-hmm. crimes against humanity in history that you always have these guys behind the desk right doing yeah. the paperwork yeah and it's fascinating, I find, how criminal regimes like like that just document their activities pretty meticulously, you know. Right, right. And then, and then one day, you know, that document administration could be used as evidence in a in a court of law against those perpetrators, like at this trial in Koblenz now, you know. Yeah. Okay, so then I guess then really the cells. Well, as for the cells, um, from the description of survivors. Um, branch 251 has some um, two rows of cells on each side of the basement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a small space in between. That's where usually the guards and jailers would uh, install their bunker beds. Mm-hmm. And the total number of cells is uh, 29. 24 for solitary confinement. And uh, those are usually up to 170 by 70 centimeters. Oh, that's small. And there are five communal cells. Those are bigger ones, up to 16 square meters. Mm-hmm. The cells have no windows or ventilation, and they are lit 24 hours a day with some sort of uh, fluorescent light, mm-hmm. the sort of uh, one you would use in a parking lot. It can be blinding the first few days because you just arrive there and it takes some maybe getting used to. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why uh, most of the people lose... Uh, track of uh, day and night and time you know so that's already that's already a kind of psychological torture method as well right there yeah yeah totally yeah, okay yeah like maybe for sleep deprivation or uh, uh, you become disoriented you know and right yeah 
And around the time that Anwar R was in charge of this facility, cell number 28 was dedicated uh, for women detainees, none of the women section. And around that time, survivors told us that to take up to 50 or 60 women. In, in that cell uh, at the same time? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this... Crowded. Yeah. After the welcoming party and the bureaucrat's job, you would be thrown into one of these, you know, filthy, smelly, mm-hmm. damp cells and uh, infested with bugs, blood splashes on the walls and mm-hmm. cold, uh, really cold in winter and uh, suffocating in summer. Mm-hmm. And after busy days, actually, these cells get uh, overcrowded. They would sometimes put you with one or two other inmates in the individual cells. And uh, the communal ones would sometimes take up to 120 detainees. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you would be standing stacked next to one another, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. So it is relatively a small prison for the massive numbers that were and are detained there over the years. I mean, it's just a basement of a two-story middle-sized residential building. Right. So yeah, I was going to say what we saw there on, on Google Maps, it's, uh, it looks like two-story high yeah. um, and not super uh, wide and, and, and long either. And then you have the cell structure in the basement. That cell structure roughly have a capacity of up to 500 inmates at any given time, depending on, on how busy it was. And because it was a relatively small building, it could get totally overcrowded, right? Yes, I, yeah, roughly around 500, but that's a big number for that small mm-hmm. uh, space. And that's actually one of the reasons, uh, also the lack of hygiene, but like uh, the fact that it's overcrowded causes health problems and chances are you would get skin rashes and uh, other easily contagious diseases. Right, uh, right. One disease that survivors describe as wide, widespread is, uh, is a kind of large swelling, mainly on the feet and hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The affected area gets swollen and blood and pus comes out. And, uh, oh, jeez. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, of course, you don't get to wash yourself or take care of your wounds and uh, communal cells, for example. Mm-hmm. You and your fellow inmates would use a kind of valve next to the hole-in-the-ground toilet for washing your face and arms, but also for drinking. Oh, so wow. you're drinking, actually, from toilet. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is unfortunately not where a regular detainee's journey ends at this point. I mean, this is just the cell. Where uh, where does the journey take us next, Karam? Yeah, unfortunately, it continues. Mm-hmm. If you're brought to Branch to 51, they usually want to get information from you. Right. Or at the very least, make you confess to whatever they accuse you of, whether you did or did not do it. Mm-hmm. So that happens in the, in the interrogation rooms. Right, and I... I guess you could also call those interrogation rooms torture chambers almost, right? I mean, there was a whole arsenal of torture methods used in those interrogation rooms, and there are really too many to mention. But you have, for example, the so-called German chair. Mm -hmm. That is a torture method used for breaking the victim's back by basically binding the victim with uh, the back towards the lower metal back of the chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another one is they handcuff you by one hand on the ceiling for hours and hours and hours. And and then when you fall asleep, they wake you up by splashing cold water in your face. Yeah, right. Yeah, Trampling on your face and head, electroshocking or tying up the male sex organ to obstruct urination and, and inflict incredible pain like that. And other sexual violence as well. Cigarette burns all over your body and... Yeah. 
the accounts from survivors are really incredible sometimes. One of them told us that um, one of his torturers was kind of special. And whenever he wouldn't cooperate, they would call this uh, special torturer guy and they would sort of yell out, bring the one-eyed guy, you know, bring the one-eyed. Wow. And then this guy would, would come into the interrogation room and, and continue the torture. And the survivor um, could see him through his blindfold because it wasn't 100% tight. And um, indeed, that, that guy, that torturer, really just had one eye and was blind on the other. And wow. I mean, you know, when you hear about this kind of stuff, it seems like you are walking through a medieval torture museum. That's... But this is... This is the 21st century in Syria, you know. This is this is branch 251. Yeah, this is like a like a horrible horror movie, you know, like mm, this all exactly. sounds like a like a nightmare. I mean, I would be dreaming about this guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, after these horrible interrogation and torture sessions, detainees would probably just be thrown back into their cells or how how does that continue? Well, yeah, if you could walk, um you would be accompanied back to your cell, but if you're limping, you would get forcefully dragged, especially during the first days of your stay, mm-hmm. when they want to break you, you know, this is, uh, this is what the system is built for, to break you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Perhaps this is a good moment to remind ourselves and the listeners here that this Syrian state-sponsored torture mas- machine is, is really a, an apparatus and a system that is, of course, much bigger than Branch 251. A report in the New York Times from May 2019 referred to 128,000 detainees who are presumed to be either dead or still in custody over all these years. And at least 14,000 individuals killed under torture over the years. Mm -hmm. So just to remind ourselves that this is really a systematic torture and a, and a killing apparatus that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And these numbers, Fritz, are not small, you know, when we say 128,000 and 14,000. Uh, for this trial, uh, we're looking at 58 counts of death, murder, mm-hmm. and, murder, yeah. Yeah, murder and uh, 4,000 of torture. But look, this number, 128,000. So also let's not forget the psychological impact as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. what we just rightfully call the apparatus also uses psychological torture that inflicts pain and seen pain, pain you can't see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. During interrogation, they would tell you that your mother or brother or sister or any loved one actually is is next door being tortured. And on many occasions, that's true. And uh, they will go through hell. Mm-hmm. until uh, you confess to whatever they are charging you with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah talking about psychological torture, um, one of the survivors says that he knew a man who was so incredibly tortured psychologically like that, that he completely lost it, mm-hmm. especially when his torturers started talking about his three daughters like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that man died in custody and yeah. he never saw those daughters again. Yes, and... Uh, if you don't die in custody, you, you carry this with you for the rest of your life, you know. Another survivor we talked to uh, says that when she realized that uh, she would fall asleep to the screams of torture and wakes up again to the screams of torture, she would never be the same person again. Just after a few days of being there in that tiny space and after I realized that I'm falling asleep to screams of torture and I'm walking up to screams of torture and I am still at that tiny space and I know that isn't just a nightmare. Your feelings die at that moment. You know that you might not be the same person afterwards. It is a psychological torture. 
Thank you very much for that comment, Nuran, and thank you for contributing to this podcast again. We really appreciate it. So what then, Karam? How long would you usually be detained? Well, it depends on how lucky you are, right? Some for a few days, others for a few months, but we also know of survivors who stayed at the branch for uh, for about a year or a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And then they usually would get transferred to either an, another branch or a so-called regular prison. It all depends, you know, on your case and what you're being accused of. Okay. So that was our journey into Branch 251 or into hell on earth. Mm -hmm. And like we said, this is some really crazy stuff and it's not easy to digest. But like we said, it's real. And um, I think one thing that we can promise our listeners, Karam, or I don't know if we can promise it, but I think... It's fair to say that this is likely the most gruesome episode of our podcast, no? And it's yeah. it's right at the beginning, but... Uh, I mean, this is what this trial is all about, right? Yeah. I think uh, we have some questions from our listeners. I'm not trying to change the topic, but like <laughs> we reached the end of our journey and now we have a couple of questions from uh, our listeners. Yeah, there was one question in particular that actually two listeners wanted to know more about came from Feline from Leipzig and Natasha from New York City. And uh, they wondered why the trial is taking place in Koblenz of all German cities and not, for example, Berlin. That's actually a good question because we discussed last time why Germany has universal jurisdiction, but not why this trial ended up taking place in Koblenz. I mean, I've been living in Germany for over two years now, and this is the first time I've heard of Koblenz, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I haven't been there either. But we will we will be going there soon, no? Yeah, we'll be yeah. going there soon, and we'll we'll check it out ourselves. And yeah. and uh, from what I hear from people, it's a really picturesque town in in West Germany on the Rhine River, uh, between Cologne and Frankfurt. It's not far mm-hmm. from the borders with Belgium, Luxembourg, and France. Mm-hmm. And the reason the trial is taking place there is pretty simple: the criminal investigation was led by the federal German police BKA, which mm-hmm. is kind of like the German FBI. Right. Yeah. And then the defendants were arrested in two different places in Germany, Anwar R. in Berlin and Iad A. in Rhineland-Pfalz, which is the federal province that Koblenz is also in. Okay, so that's the link to Koblenz, because Iad A. was right. arrested in Koblenz. But Anwar was arrested in Berlin, so why not Berlin then? Right, so Iad A. was arrested in the province that Koblenz is in, in another place, but, you know. That was the jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. It's true that Anwar R was arrested in Berlin, and you might say that would be the more likely uh, location for a it's trial the, like this. The capital, it's a big city, yeah. Yeah, but we talked to some people who know how these things go behind the scenes, and, and they said that Berlin courts were probably just too busy and did not have the capacity to deal with a complex trial like this. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that is why the indictment was eventually filed at uh, the Koblenz court and, and it was accepted there. And it seems that also Anwar R is, uh, has in the meantime been transferred from Berlin uh, to Koblenz uh, for detention. Well, uh, it's good to have you as the lawyer guy on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's a second question of this uh, from Martin in Harlem in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. He's asking us why this trial will take so long after they already went through so much of the story in the first four days. It felt like so much, right? Like reading right. the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, but we said in our uh, previous episode that it will take two to three years. And uh, so. Yeah. Yeah, and that is a long time, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. Well, then we are in for a long podcast of this trial last that long, you know? Yeah. yeah. 
But and and just just to explain the reason that these trials can take so long is that they are really complex. Obviously, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, let's just look at the amount of charges the defendants are facing. Yeah, you said it before: four thousand counts of torture, mm-hmm. fifty-eight of murder, and so on and so mm-hmm. on. Right, right, right. And the prosecutor will have to prove all of uh, those charges, and you know, obviously, that takes a while, especially because in Germany you have the what they call principle of immediacy. Mm-hmm. Um, that means that every single piece of evidence has to be presented individually to the court. And so looking at the at the amount of charges that we just mentioned, you do the math, Karam, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we got at least to a couple of years pretty fast then. But also from what I understand, this all depends on the defendant's strategy, right? I mean, if they decide... Yeah, if the, if the defendants decide to admit everything yeah. or, or parts um, uh, and maybe even cooperate... Mm-hmm. Um, not all of that evidence has to be proven in, in the same way in court. Mm-hmm. We don't know that yet. We They haven't spoken yet. We're, we're expecting that uh, to happen uh, during the next uh, court sessions. But if that happened, that would shorten things significantly. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you know, if they decide to use all the defendants' rights as they are entitled to, then that whole thing could take even longer than two, mm-hmm. three years. So what you are saying is like, we really can't tell at this stage. It's a little bit exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. If any other listeners have questions about Branch Two Fifty One, the podcast, the trial, the case, um, do let us know. Send us a message. You can find us on Twitter, and we'll also put our Twitter handles in the show notes, mm-hmm. and uh, we will try to answer as many questions as we can. And that's it for the second episode. So, what do you think we should do for for next week, Fritz? There will still be no court sessions mm-hmm. next week. So the trial will resume on the 18th of May. We are going to take another journey into the background of the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, this time, we'll talk about the investigation uh, that preceded the trial. How did the case come about? What role did victims' organizations play in that whole investigation? And how were the two defendants arrested in early 2019? I ran into Anwar uh, at the refugees camp where we both lived. I didn't recognize him at the first time. My friends later told me that Anwar R is staying at the same camp. And that it's when I knew it was him. That was the Syrian lawyer Anwar Elbani. Fate brought him face to face with Anwar R here in Berlin at the refugee center where they both lived. But now, Justice brings them face-to-face again in a court of law. We will listen to Anwar's story in the next episode, or better say, the two Anwars. Yeah, two Anwars. Well, until then, thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues. And you can also support this podcast by following the link in the show notes or clicking on the support this podcast button on our website. Branch 251 is produced and hosted by us. I'm Karam Shomali. And I'm Fritz Streif. And we'll see you next time on Branch 251. See you then.